Well, in God's providence, I'll be 43 this month, and um, beginning as my, my sagey friends would say to fill every year of it, uh, the more they come, and they come so quickly that I share that with you because I've, I've learned something in the second half of this little lifetime the Lord's given me. I've been in Christ now for 24 years, also this month. And as I've walked with Jesus, I've learned, among other things, a very sobering and honestly painful and very deeply convicting reality. In 24 years, I've learned everything about Christianity can be faked. Except one thing. And the one thing you can't fake, and neither can I, is the reflection of Jesus coming through us. I mean like genuine, Holy Spirit-given love for your enemy. You can't make yourself do that. I'm talking about a supernatural, bigger than you, agape, For Jesus, you can't make yourself do that. You can fake everything else. uh, Bible reading, church attendance, ordinances, baptism, Lord's Supper, Bible study, group Bible studies. You can fake it all. But you can't fake the reflection of Christ in you. And today's passage is a portrait of that in two ways. One, We see in the first three verses we'll look at how Christ has taken up residence in the hearts of the Corinthians. And second, we'll see how that has happened on the basis of what the text calls the New Covenant. Where the Holy Spirit indwells the people of God, putting God's own desires, His law, within them. Well, I invite you to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 to see those two beautiful realities, Christ in you, and Christ in you on the basis of His Gospel, His New Covenant promises. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we'll read the first six verses. I'm reading from the New American Standard translation, hear the Word of the living God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter. Written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Being manifested that you are a letter of Christ. Cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human heart. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The Word of the Lord. Let's again pray together before we dive in. Oh Father, would You please show us right now, right here, Your Gospel love. By the same Holy Spirit that inspired this passage and indwelt the believing Corinthians, radically changed the nature and life of the Apostle Paul. The same Holy Spirit who is at work in this text. Would you dispatch Him right now to arrest every heart and cause us to receive the fullness of Christ and the care that comes to us through even Gospel ministers as gifts that You have designed for our eternal good. Show us the promises of the Gospel. 
and cause us to salivate for the fullness of Jesus and to not stop until we have laid hold of Him by Your Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 has three parts. We're going to take it in two parts. Part 1 today, part 2, Lord willing, next Sunday. The, the first part, verses 1-6, to six, is about the Holy Spirit being active in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And there are two parts to that uh, first six verses that we'll look at. The, the next two parts, we'll combine them because they're really interpretation and application of the Mosaic Law. The Old Testament, the Ten Commandments especially. So verses 7-11, through 11, Paul interprets Exodus 32-34. through 34. And then, in verses 12-18, to 18, he applies Exodus 32-34. through 34. So as we mentioned in our initial uh, small group incentivizing sermon on the book of Exodus just a couple of months ago, there's hardly a better place for our church to land in our small group study than the book of Exodus as we walk through on Sunday mornings the book of 2 Corinthians. The overlap is just palpably rich and nowhere more obvious than 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So, those are the ways that we'll attack this chapter. Two parts, the reality of the Spirit in the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and then next Sunday, Lord willing, verses 7 to 18, the interpretation and application of Exodus 32 to 34. <clears throat> when the Spirit of the living God, we're not talking about an it or an ooze, we're talking about a person, the third person of the Trinity who has existed forever and possesses every divine attribute, when God Himself, the Holy Spirit, causes you to be born again. Regenerates you. Takes you from spiritual death to spiritual life. Raises you from the spiritual, spiritually dead. Gives you Christ Himself as your life. Then your entire life becomes a handwritten love letter of Jesus. Verse 3. Your heart is the parchment. Your heart is the paper. It's the canvas on which the Holy Spirit autographs the name of Jesus. He tattoos your heart with the Son of the living God. Instead of only you giving your life to Jesus, God gives Jesus' life to you. And verses 4-6, to that's what the New Covenant is all about. And those who minister the New Covenant and proclaim this glorious Gospel that I'm prepared to lay out for you yet again today, those who minister this glorious Gospel of God's New Covenant promises and Gospel love that's been wrought in Jesus at the cross of Calvary and the empty tomb from which Jesus was raised, shows that all the sufficiency, all the competency, all the eligibility, all the adequacy as the New American Standard puts it, all the adequacy of Gospel ministers comes from God Himself. We have nothing. We are nothing. But God has given us this glorious treasure of the Lord Jesus Christ in these jars of clay, these earthen vessels, to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from ourselves. So there's two themes in today's text, verses 1-6. to Paul really is defending his apostleship first, and he's doing it by pointing to the genuine conversion of the, Corinth, of the Christians in Corinth. You can know I'm an apostle, Paul would say, because God actually caused you to be His children through the message that I preached to you. And number two, he focuses, as I mentioned, on the new covenant. So we'll take them in those two parts. Verses 1-3 to three are Paul's credentials, and that is the church. You are the letter. You are the epistle. And that's why the title of today's sermon is The Church a Living Epistle. Look again at verses 1-3. to Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter. 
written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ. Cared for, ESV says, delivered by us. Cared for by us. Written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but tablets of human hearts. The church at Corinth was apparently being told, you can just deduce it by reading those sentences. You don't need any other material to figure this out, although there is ample material to substantiate what I'm about to say. The church at Corinth was apparently being told by false teachers that Paul was just another braggadocious, prideful, full of an ungodly ego type of man. People were apparently saying to the church at Corinth, that Paul was taking yet again another opportunity to commend himself. And whenever he saw an opening to be a me monster, Paul was the kind of guy that would turn your story into his story. That he was even using the church at Corinth as a means to boost his own pride and his own arrogance. You can find a little person very easily. Little people not talking about physical stature or anything of the sort, are the kind of people that step on other people to feel big. And they said Paul was that kind of guy. So Paul asked two rhetorical questions and he definitely, does, he definitely expects a negative response to both of them. They're contained in verse 1. Two rhetorical questions. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? The word again is in the original. Apparently these people were saying, here he goes again. So Paul just takes their accusation and says, is that what we're doing again? Or do we need, second rhetorical question, as some letters of recommendation to you or from you? Let's just take those questions one at a time. Both, as I mentioned, Paul expects to be responded to with a resolute no. Verse 1, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? That means to recommend ourselves, to, to tell you why we're something. This theme of commendation is strong in Paul's writings. And nowhere more strong than 2 Corinthians. This is chapter 3, verse 1, but let me just give you a little sampling of the remainder of the letter. Chapter 4, verse 2, we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness, not adulterating the Word of God, but by manifestation of the truth, we are commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. 2 Corinthians 5.12 We are not again commending ourselves to you, but we are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance, not in heart. 2 Corinthians 6.4 But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, afflictions, hardships, and, dis and distresses. 2 Corinthians 10.12 For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some as those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves, and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. 2 Corinthians 10.17 But he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. Verse 18 For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. 2 Corinthians 12.11 I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you. For in no respect I was inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. Paul didn't need to commend himself. So this question in chapter 3, verse 1, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? He didn't need to commend himself to anyone. He knew who he was prior to Christ. He knew he, who he was in Christ. And he knew the sacred task to which he had been called and commissioned as an ambassador of Christ. He needed no other man to commend him. He knew that he had been commended by God. In whose sight he lived his entire life and whose Gospel he faithfully proclaimed. The second question is, do we need as some letters of 
commendation, recommendation to you or from you. He's basically saying, okay, if I'm going to come back to Corinth and preach the Gospel, do I need so-and-so to write a couple reference letters so that when I come, you'll have reason to accept me and to receive the message that I'm proclaiming? Do we need that? That's the second question in verse 1. Now, it was customary in Paul's day for ministers to carry letters of recommendation. Paul even wrote several of them for other people. To the church at Rome, he wrote one concerning Phoebe. To Philemon, he wrote one for Onesimus. But for the church at Corinth to suppose that Paul needed to bring to them, as some were alleging, a letter of recommendation so that they would receive him as a credentialed minister of the Gospel was absolutely ridiculous. Do I need a note from somebody else why I'm your, your apostle church at Corinth? Do you need somebody to, to write a recommendation for me as to why I'm sent from God with His glorious Gospel to you? The question really cuts at the heart of the passage. Paul wants to know what type of confirmation the Christians in Corinth needed to receive Him as somebody who was truly sent to them by God. And the answer Paul gives them is not found in pen and ink. The answer Paul shows them is found in their heart. Written by God. So those two rhetorical questions lead to Paul explaining the credentials that he does have. Verses 2 and 3, you are our letter. Etched in Paul's own heart, he says. Written in our hearts. So Paul further defends his apostleship against the charge of being uncertified by human reference letters and people who were trying to discredit his ministry that the Corinthians were entertaining who had reference letters from so-and-so and so-and-so. And Paul shows them how the Lord of glory had made the local church his letter of commendation. All they needed to do was look at four things that Paul talks about in verses 2 and 3. Number one, all they had to do was look at their own conversion. Verse 3, you are a letter, our letter, known and read by all men. Verse 3, being manifested, you are a letter of Christ. You're the epistle. You're the recommendation letter that you're asking me to bring to you. In true conversion, the quill that Christ uses is the Holy Spirit. And the parchment on which He writes is your heart. One commentator, Scott Hafman, put it this way, the Corinthians themselves are Paul's letter of recommendation. It is this letter, their conversion, that Paul carried around, written in his own heart, and look at this, that can be known and read by everybody. The fact that they had been born again when Paul preached the Gospel to them is the proof that God sent him to them. So let's just imagine in our situation something like was being uh, experienced here in 2 Corinthians 3. Let's say that none of us had ever heard the Gospel. We didn't know that God sent His Son. That Jesus is that Son whom He had promised to send and did send. That we had no idea that what God required for us to be forgiven of our sins was the death of the Son of God. Who alone is adequate to satiate God's justice, to satisfy His just demands for the law that we had broken, and to atone for our guilt. Propitiation, expiation. Let's say we didn't know that. We had never heard this glorious Gospel. That heaven's favorite came to be the sacrifice God required for us to be forgiven and reconciled to Him. And let's just further imagine that we had never heard and had no idea that the validation, the verification, the commendation that God gave to prove to the universe that He accepted the sacrifice of Jesus, even for sinners as vile as we, is that He raised Jesus from the dead, seated Him at His right hand, and promised to give Him the nations as His inheritance. And one day He's going to come again and do just that. Rescue His people forever. 
establish a new heavens, a new earth. The joy of the saints being the joy of our own God for all ages. Let's say we didn't know that. And then somebody showed up here today and told you what I just said. And you believed. And you were united to that God. And you became an heir of all the promises that God had ever made to His Son and those that belong to Him. Now, if you are one of those... <laughs> If you have been born again, not ascribed to a series of yes or no questions. Do you believe Jesus is God's Son? Uh-huh. Believe He died on the cross? Uh-huh. That's not what I'm asking you. Your heart had been made alive and latched on to the living Jesus. If you're one of those, how did that happen to you? Deeper still, if you're one of those, the Bible promises, and Paul's Gospel was exhibit A, that if you believe that Gospel, you can't unbelieve it. Once you're united to God, you can't be ununited to Him. And Paul would say, your conversion, written in your heart, verse 3, you being the letter of Christ, is the proof that God is the one who sent me to you. The second thing he says is that the author is further evidence. Yes, God was gracious to the church at Corinth and they received two inspired letters from the Holy Spirit, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, the second which we're now reading. But God had also written to them even more deeply than that. He had written by the authorship of the Holy Spirit. And look at this title, verse 3, with the Spirit of the living God. Paul, no doubt, is already hearkening back to the Old Covenant in the language he uses, the Spirit of the living God. The Bible Paul preached to the Corinthians was the Old Testament. The New Testament was under construction, literally. And so when he came to Corinth, he, he brought out from the treasuries of the Old Covenant to introduce them to the Savior of sinners, the Lord Jesus. And when he says the Spirit of the living God, the Corinthians would have been able to connect the dots. Paul's drawing a contrast between this Old and New Covenant. The difference between the external, the tablets of stone, that Mosaic Sinai law where God etched into the stone itself His demands for His people. That external law that stood out there, He's saying the Holy Spirit now has etched internally in your heart. Charles Hodge said that the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, written on tablets of stone by the finger of God was indeed a divine work and proved the divine mission of Moses. It proved that Moses was God's servant. But what was that? To the writing of the law upon the fleshly tablet of the heart of the Corinthians by the Holy Spirit, wherein the work of regeneration being made alive, sanctification being drawn nearer and nearer to God in likeness to Christ is always represented in the Scripture as a much higher manifestation of divine power and grace than any mere external miracle. Remember what Paul told the church at Colossae. It's not Christ beside you. Or it's not Christ in your parents or in your best friend that will give you a hope of glory. It's Christ in you. That's the hope of glory. And Paul's saying that the Spirit of the living God has written as the Nicene Creed puts it so beautifully, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life. You're the proof that I'm God's Apostle. Paul would say to Corinth. Number three, it's your audience. Who's reading this letter? Look at verse 2. Known and read by all men. Don't you love that? I mean, I want you to love that. Don't you love that? How can the Corinthians know that the Gospel that they've embraced 
is the genuine article. Known and read by all men. Now I've touched this just briefly already, but let me remind you, when Jesus takes up residence in your life, it will become apparent to everybody around you. Like Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, you received the Word, talking about the Gospel Word, in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. How did Paul know that they really believed the Gospel? Not just gave verbal assent. You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for the Word of the Lord sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we need not say anything. Look at the audience. This is proof that when Jesus came in, Jesus began to permeate out. And that's the validation that the Gospel Paul preached to them, which they embraced, was the Real deal. Known and read by all men. Let's just stop for a little application and ask, before whom are you ashamed of Him? I'm not saying that let your actions preach the Gospel and if necessary, use words. You've heard that old evangelism so-called strategy, right? Preach the Gospel to everybody. If necessary, use words. Uh, it would be nice if we would be sinlessly perfected on this side of eternity. It's just not the way that it works. So as impeccably as you may live, very few people are going to look at you and say, wow, can I please become a Christian? Would you explain to me the Gospel? It it doesn't work that way. In fact, if uh, you can live so impeccably that you need not words to commend the true Gospel, then you're more holy than Jesus because uh, He who was sinless used words to proclaim the Gospel. You, you have to use words. But what Paul's saying here, something happened to you like happened to me. I was on my way to Damascus. I hated, quote, the way, capital W. I hated Jesus and anybody who had anything to do with Jesus. But when Jesus arrested me, when I was on my way to arrest those who belonged to Him, when I saw the glory of the risen Christ and the beauty of the Gospel, and that the chief of sinners has not so outsinned the commands of God that there's no mercy for me, but there's an ocean of mercy in Jesus sufficient for even a sinner like me. Paul's saying to the Corinthians, something happen to you like happened to me. That everywhere I go and everybody I'm around is the same message. Known and read by all men. Corinth was a debaucherous city full of rampant sexual immorality. People thought they were actually getting closer to God by being sexually immoral. Temple of Aphrodite. There were pagan idols all over the place. Consorting with temple prostitutes, worshiping down at the local idol trinket store. People were running from God all over Corinth, and so were these Corinthian Christians before Paul preached the gospel to them. But when Jesus took up residence in their life, Paul's saying, even in that pagan city, they all know something happened. This is the epistle that we need today, isn't it? D.L. Moody said, would you carnal Christians please do us all a favor and stop making our evangelism more difficult? If you're not going to live for Jesus around your lost friends, please stop telling them you're a Christian. Because when we go share the Gospel with them, they say, well, so and so. Now listen, we're all convicted by that. I get it. But Paul's saying there's a direct connect between the message you believe and the life you live. And that's the proof that the Gospel I preach to you is the power of God for salvation. The fourth thing he said to them, not only did he say your conversion and the authorship of the Holy Spirit in your heart and the changed life that you now bear, but in the NASB, New American Standard, it says you're cared for by us. You're shepherded 
In the ESV, it seems to indicate that the letter itself is what Paul's talking about, delivered by us. But it seems that Paul's emphasizing that the people of God who were saved in Corinth through the preaching of the Gospel of Jesus Christ by the Apostle Paul, woven into his heart, are loved by him as his own spiritual children. So while some were trying to say you shouldn't listen to Paul because he doesn't have any letters of recommendation, I believe what Paul's saying to them right here in verse 2, written in our heart, verse 3, cared for by us, I believe he's saying, you tell me who your true Gospel minister is. He's about to make his way to chapter 11 where he explains to them the hardships that he's gone through in order to serve them. Here's a man who in the Corinthians' sake, was drawing his livelihood by sewing tents together instead of taking proceeds from the church so that he could joyfully serve them. He had gone through extreme hardship even to make his way to them the first time, let alone the repeated visits and letters that he wrote to them. Here's a man whose heart broke for them. Who loved them with the love of Christ. Because he knew that they had been entrusted by God to his care. And he embraced the sacred privilege of shepherding the souls of God's sheep. And he wanted them to be for him a joy when he stood before the King of the universe and gave an account for their souls. You're written in my heart. We care for you. Christ's name had been written by the Spirit of the living God on their heart. And their names had been written on Paul's heart. And everyone can see the genuineness of their new life in Christ. They're known and read by all men. And such spiritual children are very precious to Gospel workers. So our first point was just Paul's credentials. The church itself was a living epistle. A testament to the glory of God that had been wrought by the Gospel of Christ. Verses 4-6 to gives the second part of the passage. Not only Paul's credentials, the conversion of the Corinthians, them being a living epistle, but second, Paul's adequacy, some translations say competence, is the God of the new covenant. Look at this, friends. Verses 4 to 6 such confidence we have through Christ toward God. We'll take these one verse at a time. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy, our competence, is from God, who also made us adequate, sufficient, as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Verse 4, verse 5, verse 6. Paul's competence, his adequacy, his sufficiency, is the God of the new covenant. How could Paul be so confident? Is he what all these other people were saying about him? I mean, is he a me monster? Is he braggadocious? Is he a self-made man? Pull himself up by his bootstraps. Is that who he is? He tells you in verse 4 where he gets his confidence. Such confidence is based on the mediator. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Now I want to read you a sentence that I labored over. I rewrote it like ten times, so I hope it's halfway good. No promises, but here it comes. The precision of the sentence in verse 4 is worth a lifetime of serious study, prolonged meditation, deep application, reordering the phrase to help us meditate on it. Paul is saying, number one, what he has as a Gospel minister, confidence, Number two, before whom he has it, God, and through whom he has it, Christ, is, sentence closing, the sum total of the Christian life in one sentence. This is Christianity. When you can stand not before your fellow man or a church in Corinth, but when with a trembling, and holy fear. Not prideful stupidity that boasts itself before a God that you don't know, but with bone-jarring fear 
You prostrate yourself before the God you do know. And you say, now church at Corinth, I know you want me to bring you a letter. And as much as I would like to have your approval, and as much as I'm tempted to the fear of man, and let me just cut to the chase and personalize this, I do want you to like me. And I do care what you think about me. And I can't get over it on this side of eternity. But I just care what God thinks more. I do fear you. I do. I have temptation toward the approval of man. But when you're gripped by God, it puts it all in perspective. And Paul's saying, yeah. I want you to receive me. I want you to accept me. I want you to listen to me. I want you to not believe the people who are trying to discredit my ministry to you. But I'm telling you in verse 4, I live for the audience of one. Confidence toward God. But don't miss the middle. Through Christ. So I'll read again the last phrase of the sentence that I labored over. This is the sum total of the Christian life in one sentence. That's why it's worth a lifetime of meditation and prayer and application. Godward living with Gospel confidence through the only mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Paul did live for the audience of one. Do you? An old commentator, Charles Hodge, again said, it's easy. Do you agree with this? It is easy to determine whether our confidence is godly or God-defying. Is it easy? Hodge says it's easy to determine whether our confidence is self-inflation or the strength of God in our soul. If it's pride... Hodge is going to tell you what it looks like. If it is self-inflation, it has natural concomitants of pride, arrogance, indifference, contempt of other people. If it's the strength of God in your soul, it will be attended by self-abhorrence, meekness, Long-suffering. A willingness to be the least and the lowest. And by every other grace of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5. Paul had that kind of confidence through Christ toward God. Where does your confidence lie? Second, in Paul's competence and adequacy as a minister of the New Covenant, his sufficiency from God, he says in verse 5, our ministry finds its sufficiency in the Creator. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. This is what the Spirit-filled life looks like. This is it, friends. If you want to know what it's supposed to look like, it's supposed to look like verse 5. To be Spirit-filled... Again, everything about the Christian life can be faked except the reflection of Christ in you. To be full of the Holy Spirit may not lead you to do somersaults down the church aisle. But to be full of the Holy Spirit will lead you to live a life totally dependent on the sufficiency of God in Christ. That's what Spirit-filling looks like. To be filled with the Spirit means you look away from yourself and toward the One to whom the Spirit looks. The Lord Jesus. Paul is saying that he had nothing in and of himself to accomplish the work that God had given him to do. He was not adequate. His validation was not to be measured by his own knowledge of the Scriptures. And let's just admit it, he could dance circles around all of us combined when it comes to knowledge of the Scriptures. But that's not how he measured his validation as a minister of the Gospel. Nor was it by any power that he had in himself. He didn't look to his personality, his eloquence, his Bible knowledge, or anything of the sort. He admits that he doesn't even have the right to consider, I'm quoting him, anything as coming from himself. Rather, his adequacy comes from God. How plugged into the vine was this man? 
This is what it looks like to abide in Christ. Every nutrient in my life comes from Jesus. Applied from the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit. The phrase in 3.5, our adequacy comes from God, answers his rhetorical question in 2.16. Who is adequate for such things? Dot, dot, dot. God is. One commentator said, Paul was in himself. I wonder if you've ever felt this. I do struggle to know how, you know, cite them or don't cite them. I mean, it's hard for me not to just read entire pages of good stuff to you, but here's two sentences. Have you ever felt it? Paul was in himself absolutely empty and powerless. Our sufficiency is from God, he writes. Meaning all the fitness for our work, all our knowledge, all of our personal holiness, all of our power for gospel commendation. They are neither self-acquired nor self-sustained. I am nothing, the Apostle would say. God in me is everything. This verse is a glowing example of why our entire series in 2 Corinthians is entitled Spiritual Power in the Church. Paul wanted the Corinthians to have this power. Stop looking to the people who are coming to you. I mean, not just the people who are discrediting my ministry and trying to lead you astray from the purity and simplicity of the Gospel and devotion to Christ as he's going to say to them in chapter 11. Stop not only just looking away from them, look away from me. Look to Christ. This verse rings with the preliminary echoes of what Paul's going to say very boldly in chapter 12 that God said to him, it is in our weakness that the grace of Jesus is proven sufficient for us. For the power of God, God said to Paul, is perfected in our weakness. That's what Paul's saying. God alone is the supply. He's a minister of this new covenant. He has confidence based on the mediator before God. Verse 4. Confidence through Christ toward God. Verse 5, His ministry found all its sufficiency in and from God. And finally, verse 6, our adequacy comes from the life-giving Spirit. This is what the New Covenant is. If you've heard that language before, Old Covenant, New Covenant, welcome verse 6. God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. What Paul's doing here is focusing his laser beam on the fact that he's a minister of what he calls in the verse, a new covenant. The promise of the new covenant was revealed in the old covenant. Covenant and testament are the same word. Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, God promised a new covenant. And through various spokespersons, most prominently Ezekiel and Jeremiah, which no doubt Paul is thinking about in verses 4-6, to Paul is saying, I know that when I come to you, and when I came to you, I'm a new covenant ambassador. I'm doing what Ezekiel promised God would do. I'm carrying out what Jeremiah promised God would do, and you're actually the proof that God's doing what He said He would do. Paul's thinking of Ezekiel 11. Where in verse 19, Ezekiel prophesied, and I will give them one heart. And God said, I will put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. And when Paul says, he wrote it on your heart. He's saying it's not a tablet of stone. He literally said that. It's on a fleshly heart. You now pulsate. You're sensitive to the prick of God in the Gospel of Christ. Ezekiel 36, Paul's thinking of this passage. Listen to it carefully. Especially if you 
think you're familiar with it. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. Ezekiel 36.25 And you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes and you will be careful to observe My ordinances. This is what Paul has in his mind when he says in verse 6, God made us sufficient as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Then one commentator wrote a sentence that I agree with to my bones. How one understands Jeremiah 31-34 will determine to a great degree how one reads and applies 2 Corinthians chapter 30. If you don't know Jeremiah 31-34, you're not going to understand 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So what does Jeremiah 31-34 say? I'm glad you asked. Verse 31 down to verse 34 says this. God speaking. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, hello Exodus, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And on their heart, I will write it. And I will be their God. And they shall be My people. And they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know Me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, here it comes, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That's the New Covenant promise. Old Testament Israel salivated to experience that, and the remnant of Israel did experience that. But when they heard, we continue to be lawbreakers every time God tells us not to do it, we do it again. We get carried away into slavery. We get carried away into captivity. Our cities get pillaged. Our temple gets destroyed. We try to rebuild the thing. We rebel all over again. And they hear, it's not going to be outside of you. I'm going to be inside of you. And you're not going to have this cyclical pattern of response, repent, rebel. I'm going to forgive your sin. And I'm going to forgive it like this. I'm never going to remember it again. Paul's thinking about that passage. And he says that this is the ministry to which He has been called. He is a servant of that New Covenant. The same one that Jesus cited on the moment of the Last Supper with His apostles. This is the New Covenant in My blood. The same passage that not only Jesus had on His lips at the Last Supper and Paul's thinking of in 2 Corinthians 3, but that Paul elaborates on in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. He no doubt alludes to in Romans chapter 2. It's exactly what Paul's thinking about in Galatians chapter 5. And it's verbatim what the author of Hebrew quotes in Hebrews chapter 8 and again in chapter 10. And let me just put all that in a bucket, tie a bow on it, and hand it to you in Hebrews chapter 10. The writer of Hebrews says, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews says, you get confident access to God through Christ. Because He did Jeremiah 31-34 for you. He forgave your sins in Jesus. Who died for you? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. To take your sin away. And to empower you, Hebrews 10, to live holy lives before God. So let's close where Paul closes. For the letter kills. 
Verse 6, but the Spirit gives life. This phrase has been no, there has been no shortage of controversy surrounding this phrase. If you lived in the year 254 AD, you would hear Origen and his contemporaries allegorizing this. Making the law into an allegory, making the Spirit into an allegory. If you lived in the time of the Reformation, 1500s, Europe, France and Germany especially, you would hear a prominent reading of this statement as a division between the law and the gospel. In the modern era, from basically the contemporary Puritans onward to today, you would hear emphasis on letter of the law versus spirit of the law. Everything I just said to you, summarizing church history in three bullet points, have vastly different interpretations of that phrase. So how does the letter kill? And what does it mean that the Spirit gives life? Well, the good news is that all of church history agrees on what I'm about to say to you. The letter of the law, supported by the character of God, from whom it was given, kills you in this way. It demands perfect obedience from you or merciless death. The law doesn't make you a sinner. It reveals that you're one. The letter shows you that you cannot commend yourself to God. I beg of you, don't go to God and tell Him that your good outweighed your bad. Because your problem is one half of one sin is reason enough for God to send you to hell forever. You don't want to stand on your own righteousness, especially against the backdrop of His holy law. This is why the Gospel of Christ is good news as we sing around here to sinners deep in debt. We're all lawbreakers. We all disobey God's good commands. I believe Paul's basically saying this, and I think that all of church history would agree with this statement in a way that's not controversial. The law without the Holy Spirit living inside of you will kill you. Because otherwise, you do not have the resources to obey its demands. As I said, Paul takes this issue up in Romans 2, 6-8, Galatians. In Romans 8, Paul says that I believe in the most condensed way. Listen carefully and I close here. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. The law got fulfilled by a perfect law-abiding citizen. That's what Paul's saying in Romans chapter 8, verse 3. So that, Romans 8, 4, here's the conclusion I think of Paul's most succinct statement on this whole issue. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh. Thank you, 2 Corinthians 3.6. But according to the Spirit. The Spirit gives you life. So then the operative question becomes for every human who's ever lived or ever will live, how can you have the Holy Spirit? If anyone does not have the Spirit of God, God's Word says, He does not belong to Him. Charles Simeon answers the question. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The law issues commands to you without any help to you. And menaces you without any hope. But the Gospel offers you a free pardon of all your sin and communicates strength for all the obedience God requires of you in the future. Thus, the one is a letter that kills you. The other is a spirit which gives life to you. Paul's competence was that he was a minister of the new covenant. His adequacy, his sufficiency 
was that he was preaching to people the only way they could ever be made right with God and have power to obey his good commands. So the application, one, two, and three. Choose your method of redemption wisely, friends. I mean, God sees the heart and we don't, but how many times are we going to live to hear statements like we've all heard dozens if not hundreds of times, which suggests that most of the church may be unregenerate. God knows. So I say choose your method of redemption wisely, and that's what I mean. Either the letter, and you commend yourself to God on the basis of your own righteousness, or the Spirit. It's why we sing the sentences that we sing in the songs that we sing around here. We sang one this morning, till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. That's where my hope lies. The blood of Christ. We also sing Rock of Ages where in verse 2 it says, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. That's what Paul's talking about. So choose your method of redemption wisely. The only favorable meeting place between you and I and God is Jesus. That's it. Number two, live upon the sufficiency of God. The adequacy of God depending upon the person of the Holy Spirit who ministers Christ's redeeming work to our hearts and empowers us to obedient living. This is what I mean to decode what I just said from preachy talk. Do you like to be told what to do? It's the wrong question. It's a trick question. Christians love to be told what to do. We don't say, who do you think you are, God, to tell me how to live my life? We say, for Christ's sake, would you allow me to reflect His glory? Tell me how you want me to live. Give me the grace to deny myself and to follow Christ. That's what I mean when I say number two, live upon the sufficiency of God, depending on the Holy Spirit to empower us for obedient living. And then third and finally, because Paul said that the letter of the Corinthians was written on his heart and that he cared for them, I can't not say, receive the care of Gospel ministers who labor for your spiritual maturity and progress in the faith. Be a joy to shepherd. Don't be constantly suspicious of people who are laying their life down to try their best, God helping them to help us all make progress in the faith. We all need that. I'm preaching to myself. As a pastor, I need pastors. Receive the care of Gospel ministers who labor for your spiritual maturity. If a broken-hearted Gospel minister has told you 20 times the same thing and you're still not doing it, don't go back and see them until you're willing to say, God, will you help me? If that's in accordance with your word, if it rings true with Scripture, if it reflects the Lordship of Jesus, don't let me live another day until by your grace I bring this into application. Receive the care of Gospel ministers. Church at Corinth wasn't doing that at the time of the writing, but we know that later on, because of what Paul's going to say to them, that they heard what he said and they received his care. And they began walking in Koinonia with the Lord and with his people. Well, let's join our hearts in prayer. Oh, Father, once again, here we are. After looking at such a glorious passage in Your Word, we have nothing but a tongue that stammered and fumbled and bumbled along the way to try to speak the glorious truths of who You are and what You've accomplished for us in Christ. So Lord, we ask that You would take anything that was said that was true, and You would sear it into our hearts. And that You would take anything that was said that was wrong or false, misguided, and You would cause us to forever forget it. But most of all, we ask, as Paul testified to, that You would give us the fullness of the Holy Spirit in our life. We ask for that, Lord. That among all men, wherever we go, in all our labors for the Gospel, whatever we do, 
that we would be able to say that our proud confidence is right before the face of God through Christ. Cause us to live like that, Lord. Thank You for these precious people and the saints of this church who are seeking Your face and seeking to live a life that You call us to in Christ. But for any who are outside of Christ, maybe even those who've had false assurance, oh God, we ask that for Your glory, You would cause Jesus to take up residence in their heart. And that You would sign their heart by the Holy Spirit with the name of Your Son. That You would get the glory in redeeming those for whom Jesus died. Lord, cause this church and our lives as members of it to be what can't be faked. To be an increasingly accurate reflection of the life of Christ. Oh God, for Your glory we ask. In Jesus' name, Amen.